invite you to open your Bible to Psalm 7. Psalm 7, the title of this sermon is A Song for the Slandered Saint. So open up to Psalm 7, and it's best we begin by hearing it. It has an important and timely message today. Psalm 7, starting with the title of the psalm, which is a shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord my God, in You I have taken refuge. Save me from all who pursue me and deliver me, or He will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, If there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but... Establish the righteous, for the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out, and has fallen into the hole which he has made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate. I will give thanks to the Lord according to His righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. This is the Word of God. A Song for the Slandered Saint is a great sermon title. I stole it from Spurgeon. I figured he wasn't using it anymore, so that famous 19th century Baptist preacher, he'd lend it to me. And the crime I committed against Spurgeon wouldn't have been unfamiliar to him. Uh, He was the object of so much ill treatment. If you've read very much about that famous pastor's life, the prince of preachers, that uh, great pulpit, that one of the first and earliest mega churches uh, in the Western world, Uh, Spurgeon was just uh, famous, so well-known, well-regarded. People read Spurgeon all over the world. As soon as he preached a sermon that was printed and distributed, sent to North America, around the world, translated into many languages uh, for a time when steamboat travel was the fastest you could get anywhere, it was remarkable how many millions of people were influenced by Spurgeon's teaching. In his brief life, he only lived to be in his late 50s, uh, millions of people had read Spurgeon, and that continues to this day. But he was ill-treated, and it was the last four years of his life that were the most difficult that he ever endured. Uh, We call it the downgrade controversy. If you want to read about it, there's an excellent book our pastor wrote a number of years ago uh, called Ashamed of the Gospel. It's really a book that's a critique of the seeker-sensitive and 
uh, emergent movements, strange, odd, man-centered trends in the church. And our pastor wrote that book to counter those trends. And the first ten chapters or so uh, really parallel and explain the continuities between what we see in the church today and what Spurgeon was concerned about in the downgrade controversy. It was in the summer of 1887 that Spurgeon penned a number of articles in his magazine, The Sword and the Trowel, complaining about an increased infiltration of liberal theology among the Baptists and dissenting churches that Spurgeon was affiliated with. And when his message of warning was not received by the churches, and when no change had been brought forth, and Spurgeon's concern was still elevated, uh, Spurgeon did something that uh, caused an extraordinary amount of vitriol and criticism uh, to be directed at him. He pulled the Great London Metropolitan Tabernacle, his church, out from the Baptist Association of Churches. And this was a shocking move. And Spurgeon was viciously criticized for it. His own brother turned against him. His, uh, so many men that he had trained in ministry and sent into churches turned on him. Uh, men who were intimate and uh, dependent even on Spurgeon and who had found in Spurgeon so much influence and discipleship and uh, partnership in the gospel and friendship turned on him in those years. And the next four years of Spurgeon's life would be his most difficult, his four final years Later, his wife Susanna would say that he actually died uh, not of all the medical maladies he faced, but of a broken heart. It was the slander. It was the accusations. It was the falsehoods leveled against Spurgeon. It was the, the lies about his motives that broke Spurgeon's heart and drove him to God. And when you think about that controversy today and how it plagued Spurgeon so much, you realize, who do we know that was on the other side of that thing? Name some people. I mean, Nate Busnitz could name somebody because he's a church historian. Did you read their devotional this week, morning and evening? What is theirs called? Afternoon and late afternoon? I mean, Spurgeon's impact is, is incalculable. He's still, his voice is still heard today, though dead he speaks. And his critics that seemed so loud in the moment in 1887, I mean, they're gone. Their impact didn't last. I mean, that seems to be the way that it often is. That criticism of God's servants is something that sounds so loud and clamorous and begs for your attention, and tries to stir up controversy and conflict and disunity, but in reality, as time passes, the critics cease to exist, and God's servant is vindicated. I mean, this was the case for, for Spurgeon, I mean, we could see it now, but this was also the case for the Apostle Paul. In the sunset of the Apostle Paul's life, he encountered all kinds of deserters and haters and scoundrels and false teachers that were haranguing him. And in his final letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1.14, he urges his young disciple to guard the treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And then says in verse 15, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including... Figelus and Hermogenes. Did you catch those names? Any hip Christians have a Philegus and Hermogenes tattoo? You ever think about Philegus and Hermogenes? Am I even pronouncing it right? I mean, the Apostle Paul, I mean, there's shelves and shelves of books that have been written in dedication to his service to the Lord. F.F. F. Bruce's magisterial biography, the, the Apostle of the Heart Set Free. Whoever wrote about Phygelus? Well, that sounds like you go to the doctor, you get Phygelus. 
When these guys are forgotten, their names written down, but who were they? Who knows? Who were all those in Asia who deserted Paul? At the time, it was exquisitely painful, we know. And the slanderous arrows were, were shooting forth. And I'm sure there was plenty of people listening to these cats. But in the end, the testimony and integrity of the apostle endured. This was the Lord Jesus Christ's experience. And the Messiah walked in this earth. You think of the, the week that we're about to commemorate and celebrate as He transformed the, the Passover into uh, the Lord's Supper and then the, the Passion Week leading up to His crucifixion, leading up to His resurrection and ascension on high, that, that most pivotal week of His life. You remember when you read the account in well, any of the Gospels, it was that last week of His life where He was constantly plagued by critics. Who were they? Well, they were the Pharisees and the scribes and the experts in the law. And they brought their accusations and their contestants and their uh, problems and their tribunals, and they tried to trap Jesus and trick Jesus. And He'd go into Jerusalem, and, and they would ask Him a question intending to, uh, to harm Him. But where are those guys now? the Pharisees and scribes and experts in the law who maligned in their desperation, who schemed against Him. It just seems to be this way that those who criticize God's servants are doomed towards obscurity. Who brought the charges against Calvin in Geneva? It was the Libertines. I don't know what their name was. Parlez-vous Francais? I don't know. But Calvin's influence remains. Who locked Charles Simeon out of his church? Some snobby rich people. I don't know what their names were, and, and nobody does. God has a way of erasing the critics of the faithful in time. And that's the context of Psalm 7. A psalm that is set up with a pretty mysterious superscription. A Shigion of David. And I know what you're thinking, what's a Shigion? Should I get my Shigion, or how, how do I need to feel about this? Well, scholars don't know what it is. Maybe it comes from the root word for going astray, but maybe not. It's only featured here, and uh, a form of it in Habakkuk 3.1, uh, before uh, Habakkuk's poem. I don't know if it's a, a, a kind of a concept that's musical or something that's theological. This is a kind of prayer where David just pours out his heart. It, it is that kind of a prayer. It does have anxiety. It has some of the forms of his lament songs, but it ends so abruptly with kind of a broken stanza. So we don't know what that is. We know David wrote it. We know he did sing it to Yahweh, poured it out to the Lord. But then the mystery continues because it says concerning Cush, a Benjamite. Well, what's a cush? Who's a cush? Ask your local seminarian, and they can search First and Second Samuel. They could take the Grace Equip class and study the whole Testament, New Testament, learn Hebrew three. They're not going to find cush anyplace. It's the only place he appears. I mean, he was dominant in the life of King David. He caused King David an extraordinary amount of trouble, as you see in Psalm seven. But he has completely vanished into history. God has a way of erasing the critics of the faithful. And this teaches us something. This, this obscurity is instructive at the outset of this psalm. Because this is a psalm for the afflicted. This is a psalm for the slandered. This is a, a song that helps us in our times of crisis and, and difficulty, a psalm that teaches us that God has something to show us in these most difficult and maligned days where you or someone you love is being slandered and mistreated. Well, David understands what that was like, and he composes a prayer, a song of faith, a song of trust. And though David's critic has been long forgotten, he wasn't forgotten in this day. 
He was loud and he was proud. But David pens a song to remind all those who would be slandered, all God's servants to come, to remind us that those slanderers' voices are loud in the moment. Our faith can be strong, even when it's strongly opposed. He shows us the importance of trusting God through the trial and not amplifying the voice of the critic. Psalm 7 teaches us that the faithful call for God to help, all the while very careful to maintain a clean conscience. The faithful trust in God's vindication in Psalm 7, in ultimate justice, and the faithful rest in God's perfect righteousness. And then this whole song ends with worship and gratitude, thanksgiving and praise. It shows us that the ideal attitude of our hearts, even when we're persecuted and slandered and assailed, is one that's fundamentally trustful. Trusting of God, calling out to Him for rescue, looking to a final justice and a final vindication that's grounded in the righteousness, the the character, the righteous character of God. And waiting, waiting for God to act, knowing that He will, and praising Him all the while. There's lessons here for all of us to trust God in trouble, to trust God in slander when our enemies, though someday they will be erased from history, their loud voices bother us now and we can give that to God. And so let's, let's have Psalm 7 teach us just how to do that. Here's our first heading, verse 1 through 5. Faith cries for help from a clean conscience. Faith cries for help from a clean conscience. Look at verse 1. Yahweh, my God, in You I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who are hounding me and deliver me. I mean, there's no shortcuts here. There is no meandering about either. This song shows us at the very outset that when we're in trouble, when Cush the Benjamite is flying accusations at David, David is going to go a certain direction. And that direction is to God. I think this shows us that David is normally in times of peace and prosperity, Godward. Therefore, when trouble comes, David's direction doesn't require an about-face. Instead, David is Godward. And so his prayer begins with that Godward focus. Yahweh, my God, it's a personal kind of uh, approach to God. He's Yahweh, my God, in you I have taken refuge, that that most common metaphor in the Psalms for security, for a, a fortress, for being surrounded and protected by God, having ourselves safe in God. You know this, this refuge-like attribute of God. Psalm 511 says, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy and you may shelter them, that those who love your name may exult in you. Or flip forward to Psalm 16 that says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in You. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides You. Flip over to Psalm 18 and you see similarly, this song opens with, I love You, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. I call upon Yahweh who is worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. Same psalm, verse 30 says, As for God, His way is blameless. The word of Yahweh is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless. He makes my feet like hinds feet and sets me upon my high places. 
you could carry on throughout the Psalter and see that those who sing songs of trust see God as a refuge because they have a Godward direction in life. Therefore, in times of trial and trouble, they know exactly where to go. And so what does David do? He cries out to God, his God, for help. He says, save me, verse 1. Deliver me, verse 2. The danger is real. David understands that this is an actual threat. And though we don't know the precise historical circumstances, if this is the the time of Absalom, if this is uh, one of Saul's compatriots, we know that the Benjamites were, were kind of always a problem for David. That particular tribe was against him regularly in his life and kingship. But we don't know the exact episode. We just know it was It was a dangerous one, according to verse 2. David employs another common metaphor in the Psalms of the the evil, the enemies, are like a lion to him. He says, lest they rip me to shreds like a lion, and there is none to deliver. I mean, we don't think much about lions unless you go to the zoo and see one napping in the sun. That wasn't how it worked in, in ancient Israel. I mean, lions were out and about, Maybe if you live in the foothills and you have a poodle, you're worried about a mountain lion. But lions back then, were, were, they were in the streets, so much so that a sluggard could use a lion as an excuse. I can't go to work today. There might be a lion in the street. I mean, he's not making stuff up. I mean, he is in that case, but there really were lions in the streets sometime. And lions are, are a dangerous creature. More than a decade ago, I visited South Africa on a mission trip with our church and visited with some missionaries called the Beat the Box. And Brian, on our day off, made me dig ditches all week. And then on our day off, uh, we went to a lion park where you get to you know, interact with a baby lion. And we go into this, this deal, and these lions were not babies. They were not toddlers. They were straight-up middle school lions. They were, <laughs> they were juvenile delinquent lions. They were not an appropriate size to snuggle. They smelled bad. They were greasy and oily. And by the time I finished my little visit with the lions, I was bleeding. Scratch my arm, scratch my leg, chew on my arm. These were, these were playful lions and dangerous lions. No me gusta. That's because lions aren't for playing. They're dangerous. Scientists tell us that a lion's bite is uh, between 600 and 1,000 pounds per square inch. That's the, the force of its mouth. And so David knew that that real danger of lions was, was something that he could draw on to compare how he was being treated by this slanderer named Cush. Funny name, slanderer. But dangerous with a bite like a lion. Asserting that David was the problem. And David sees that he has no way out of this slander. In fact, at the end of verse 2, he says, there's none to deliver me except the one he's asked, which is God, verse 1. And so he has this singular focus on God in midst all of this slander. His faith cries for help from God and from God alone. And then what's most instructive in this first stanza is what happens in verse 3. He continues his prayer to Yahweh, saying, Yahweh my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, and then verse 4, further, if I have paid back my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause. This gives us a glimpse of what the charges were. What did Cush say about David? Well, he said that What he was doing with his hands was evil. He was a sinner. He was sinful. He was up to no good. That he was treacherous, verse 4, paying back his friends with evil. That he had no concern for justice in battle, in war. He plundered the enemy without cause. Cush is trying to rabble up opposition to David, to his kingship, to his military leadership, to whatever it is with all these accusations that he's trying to make stick. And people are listening. And David hears it. And David makes a solemn vow. Verse 3 and 4 and 5, David is, 
using this strong affirmation of innocence that ends with a prayer of self-imprecation. He says, if I've done this, if there's iniquity in my hands, if I paid back my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, as he says I did, verse 5, may an enemy pursue my soul and overtake me. May he trample my life to the ground and may he lay my glory in the dust. David is willing to put himself out there, to vow on his own life that these accusations are baseless. Note that David isn't calling himself sinless, but righteous as it relates to these false charges. David is willing to bring these false charges to God because David is aware of how important it is to have a clean conscience. Many cry for God's help, but few do so from a clean conscience. And this is so crucial to us as we are accused and slandered and persecuted. That when we're reviled, we're not reviled for doing what is wrong. And so the Bible continually puts before God's people the importance of having a clear conscience. Acts 24, 16, when Paul is testifying before Felix, he says, almost as an aside, so I always take pains, Acts 24, 16, to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. David knows that talking to God is foremost, but David is aware that his conscience must be clear as it relates to these charges. And so it's an opportunity for us to learn a little bit from David about the importance of a clean conscience, because that's the basis for our crying out to God. If the accusers are right, our hearts should condemn us. There should be repentance and acknowledgement of guilt. And we should take this to the Lord in prayer. And the conscience is God's given faculty to help us in times of trouble and accusation. What do you know about the conscience? I mean, you have an experience with one. All human beings have a conscience. I'm sure you experience, like me, your conscience being activated at a young age. That feeling of guilt that drove you to confess something that you did wrong, that you thought wrong to your mom or to your dad. That feeling of heaviness and guilt. So prominent at a young, tender age, but... So often, for so many, quieted over the years. How's your conscience? The conscience is far more than Jiminy Cricket. That's just a bug on your shoulder. The conscience has been called the policeman of the soul. It's that internal barometer of right and wrong. In MacArthur's book, The Vanishing Conscience, he calls the conscience the soul's automatic warning system. You see, inside of all of us is a a sense of right and wrong. And it's not inerrant. It's not authoritative. It's just there. A sense of right and wrong. Like a, a smoke detector going off saying there must be toast burning in the house. Like an engine light on the dash of your car that you're tapping on and that's not making it turn off. Uh, it's saying there's something wrong, something deeper. That's your conscience. Just a quick biblical theology of the conscience. The conscience is something that God created in all of us. It's a gift from God. But our consciences, like all of us, is, are corrupted and seared by sin. And until we come to faith in God through Christ, our consciences need to be washed by the blood of Jesus. And when they are, we understand what it means to be forgiven, to have a clean conscience. And so when the believer sins against God, they now have an awareness of what sin is and who God is and and what repentance looks like. And so our conscience continues to function throughout our Christian life. Not perfectly, but in an improved way through chastening and through being informed by Scripture and guided by the Spirit through the Word of God and corrected and realigned through the Bible. 
That's what our consciences are supposed to be doing. Your conscience needs maturing, just like your faith does. It needs information, just like your faith does. And it gets that good information from the Scriptures, from the application of the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, in the heart of the believer. And when you are accused, your conscience is going to either join the voice of the accuser, or it's going to defend you. And you bring that clean conscience to God. And you say, like David said, show me if there's any wicked way in me. That's why Hebrews 10 said in our Scripture reading, we draw near with a clean conscience. And our conscience doesn't stay clean. It needs to be cleansed, right? Psalm 19, verse 12. Or even verse 11, Moreover, by them your servant is warned talking about the Word of God warning us. In keeping them, there is great reward. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me, and then I'll be blameless. I'll be acquitted of great transgression. Or famously, Psalm 32, verse 1, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Or Psalm 51, in David's great song of repentance, You see his conscience being cleansed. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge." The policeman of the soul is keeping watch, informed by the Word of God, helping us to confess our sins and knowing and experiencing that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so David employs his conscience in verses 1-6, through and his cry for help is a cry from a clean conscience. The slanderer's words are perceived to be untrue, And so David brings that to the throne of God and seeks help and deliverance and salvation from the point of a clear conscience. Secondly, verses 6-9, through faith appeals for God's vindication and rests in His justice. Faith appeals for God's vindication and rests in His justice. Verses 6-9, through look at verse 6, the center point of this song. He says, Arise. Rise up, O Yahweh, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the outbursts of my enemies. Wake up on my behalf to the judgment that you command. David is asking God for vindication. It's as if he has a a court date with God. This whole psalm is reminiscent of Job 31 at the end of all of Job's friends' bad advice. Job does a final appeal for his his righteousness in this situation, that it wasn't his sin that caused his suffering. And and he he does a very similar kind of sound. You can read it for yourself, Job 31. It's a whole chapter of kind of pleading for God's assistance in vindicating him. And that's what David does here in verse 6. He asks God to rise up, to lift himself up, to wake up on David's behalf to a commanded or appointed judgment. David realizes that the only way he can be vindicated is if God solves this thing. Otherwise, it's just his word against the word of his enemy. The only ultimate rendering that could fix this is God's intervention. And so David seeks God's vindication. Simultaneously, David realizes that God is allowing this slander to take place. And God hasn't intervened with his justice. The lies are still out there. The enemies are still barking. And so what's David do? Well, he appeals for vindication 
but he simultaneously shows his posture is a posture of trust and rest in God's justice. And he grounds that desire for God's immediate justice, immediate intervention in David's problem that he's experiencing at this time with a final horizon of God's inevitable judgment of all people. Look at it in verse 7. It says, the assembly of the peoples. That's a word for like the, the neighboring nations. The peoples. Like humanity. The assembling of humanity will surround you, O God. Over it, return on high or, or turn towards this assembly. He sees that prophetically in verse 7. Futuristically. It's something that's going to happen. Someday, all nations, all peoples will stand before God's judgment throne. Verse 8, he says it again, Yahweh himself will sit in judgment on the peoples. And David aligns God's inevitable, future, perfect adjudication of right and wrong in the lives of every single creature that God made with David's right now crisis situation. Verse 8, pass judgment on me, Yahweh. In a prayer to God, in a political dilemma, in the threat to his kingship, in his reputation on the line, he looks forward to God's justice in a final way and knows that his vindication will somehow line up with that. He'd love to see it happen now. He knows he'll see it happen then. Verse 8, Yahweh himself will sit in judgment on the people's Pass judgment on me, Yahweh, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, let it come upon me. He sounds like the Apostle Paul, who wouldn't defend himself in 2 Corinthians, but then defended himself, and then wouldn't defend himself, and then defended himself, and then said, my conscience is clean. That's the dilemma of this final judgment. We know that God will set all things right, but the problem in this world is that He hasn't done it yet. And so we experience this animosity and hatred and vitriol and God's justice isn't being accomplished. Why are they saying bad stuff about us? It's not true. We learn from David that our faith needs to rest in a a future tense accomplishment of God's perfect justice. Oh, let the evil of the wicked ones come to an end, verse 9. But establish the just. And where does he land this thing? Verse 9, the, the final part. There is one who tests hearts and minds. In Hebrew, it's hearts and guts. It's, it's kidneys. and It means all of you. Your mind, your emotion, your volition, he says, there is one who tests everything inside of me. My thoughts, my motives, my emotions, my desires. All of it is tested. Because all of it is being condemned and accused by Cush. His motives are bad. He's in it for the money. He's, he's in it to, to hurt people. He, he's, he's evil. He's wicked. He, he has bad intentions. All of this is being said. And David just gets to a point of resignation to say there is one who can test my motives. There is one who tests hearts and guts and kidneys and minds and the whole thing, who has perfect x-ray vision of me in this situation, who knows me completely for bad and for good. He says, who is it? A righteous God. A righteous God. How the petty tribunals of this world and the egregious miscarriages of justice that we experience in this world will fade when in God's final judicious act He sets everything right. You can be assured of that, dear brothers and sisters. You can know that it's true. That no sin will go unpunished. The proof of it is grounded in the character of God and His righteousness, but it's been demonstrated for us personally for us on the cross of Calvary, hasn't it? If my sin 
required the substitution of the sinless Son of God on the cross in my place to endure the indignation and wrath of God that is spoken of in these verses. If my sin to be washed clean required it to be borne by my Savior on the cross, if that was something where God was not willing to say, Duncan, he's a good guy. I'll just swipe this kind of, como se dice, sweep it under the rug. Uh Uh-uh. Every sin will either be paid on that cross or on the head of the sinner forever in hell. And if we've experienced the forgiveness of God, it's because our sins have been paid in full by Jesus. That's a kind of final vindication we have to be aware of as forgiven people. And David rests in the righteousness of God. And that's where this psalm concludes. Verse 10-16, through final heading, faith confesses trust in God's righteousness. Faith confesses trust in God's righteousness. So he says, a righteous God, verse 9. And then he depicts the righteous God putting on armor for war. Being dressed as a warrior. David apparently does not have the military ability at this point to silence Cush. He doesn't have the political favor. Whatever it is, this is something David can't deal with. And so in his mind, in his prayer, in his song, he pictures God getting a shield. God putting on His armor. God sharpening His sword. It's a vivid image of the judgment of God. And so if you're maligned, if you're slandered, or if people you care about have been maligned and slandered, this is a reminder of an unavoidable justice to come when God pours out His anger on those who do wrong to His servants. It's also a reminder to those of you who haven't been maligned but are the maligners. Maybe you're here today and and you're the one who's spoken lies. You're the one who's accused God's servants. You're the one who's turned up your nose at God and wondered about His righteousness. These verses serve as a dire warning to you. They also help us understand how we can rest in God's judgment being appropriate and just and right. I mean, there might be others here who have a real problem with the doctrine of eternal punishment. I think these verses can help you with that. Because David's faith ultimately doesn't just rest in God's vindication and justice, but in something that's underneath that. So if the psalm starts with David crying for help from a clean conscience and then moves to this appeal for vindication and arresting on God's final day of judgment, there's something underneath all of that. And what's underneath all of that is a faith that confesses trust in God's righteousness. You're going to find the answer to your dilemma, whether you're maligned or you're the maligner, whether you understand and are comfortable with the doctrine of God's final judgment and wrath or not, all of it can be found in the character of a righteous God and learning to trust in Him. Look at verse 10 as God puts His armor on. David says, My shield is upon God, the Savior of the upright in heart. God is a a righteous judge, an indignant God every day. If one does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He is sure to bend his bow and and make it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of, of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. This is a portrait of God the warrior. God the, verse 11, righteous judge. God the Savior. A God of perfect, indignant anger. This is the God depicted as laughing in the faces of His adversaries in Psalm 2. A God of righteous wrath. And we all understand anger. We have anger. It's just usually not righteous. We understand wrath. We understand what it means to fly off the handle. Have you ever stubbed your toe in the garage? I will throw that thing that I stubbed my toe on because it's that thing's fault. 
When we fly off the handle on stupid things. But this portrait of God flying off the handle isn't one of uncontrolled anger. It's one of settled, determined wrath. God's righteousness is an attribute that insists upon His indignation towards sinners, those who have violated His law. And just as we know that His saving work is part of His nature, verse 20, the Savior of the upright in heart, we know that His righteous judging is equally and completely a part of who He is. God is all Savior. God is all righteous anger all at the same time. And I love that David knows this and sees even an opportunity for mercy because he knows the character of God includes that as well. Verse 12, if one does not turn back, same word from verse 7 of returning on high, if one does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. This God who is a warrior going into battle, there's only one thing that would stop his wrath, and that's repentance. Repentance. So if you're a maligner of God's people here today, if you've lived your life with the devil a long time and been running from God, today would be a good day to repent because God is sharpening His sword, because God's anger is justified towards sinners. And the only way to escape it is to turn away from your sin and embrace His saving mercy, which we see perfectly in Jesus. As God prepares Himself for battle in verse 13, we see another glimpse of the troublemaker. Here's Cush travailing with mischief. He's, he's in labor with mischief because he's conceived trouble, formulating a plan. There's like a pregnancy illusions here. He, he gives birth to a lie. This is the destiny of the troublemaker. This is the destiny of the liar, the slanderer. You will conceive trouble and you'll travail with mischief and you'll give birth to a lie. But it's not going to work out for you because the divine warrior made this whole world. He made you. And usually your consequences of all your machinations fall back on your own head. Verse 15. You see this all the time in the Psalms. He sunk a pit and dug it out. And he's fallen into the pit that he made. Classic. The boomerang. He's basically saying the prayers, he's praying that the wicked will be self-destructive. And they so often are. Trouble will come down in his head. On his skull, his violence will come down. There's no escaping the right and righteous wrath of God. There's no escaping the character of God's righteousness, that divine attribute that says that God is always right and He always acts in accordance with His character. And so whether it's divine judgment, whether it's eternal punishment, whether it's a miscarriage perceived of justice in this world or a final rendering of judgment by God, we can rest assured that God is righteous in and of Himself. His demands are always righteous. His provision is always righteous. His reward will always be righteous. His punishment will always be righteous. The psalmist continually says, righteous and justice are the foundation of His throne. God Himself is right and righteous. And we rest in that amid the slander and the trouble. And that's not the only place David stops. You don't get another heading for this, but you get a conclusion in verse 17. What does David do after crying for help from a clean conscience and appealing for God's vindication and resting in God's perfect justice, all grounded in the trust that David has as he confessed God's perfect righteousness? Well, David closes it off in verse 17, kind of a broken stanza. Just one little verse, and it just says, I'll give thanks to Yahweh in accord with His righteousness. Responding to God's righteousness means an awareness of gratitude we have. Gratitude for forgiveness. Gratitude for the life that we have. Gratitude for the breath. Gratitude that God will vindicate us even though our enemies are still loud and proud. 
I'll give thanks to Yahweh in accordance with His righteousness. Verse 17, I'll indeed make music. That's the, the title of the book of Psalms. It's, I will indeed keep on psalming. David will keep praising. Cush is still barking. David, still praising. Still maligned, still suffering, still persecuted, still praising. That needs to be our testimony. That needs to be our takeaway. Giving thanks to Yahweh in accordance with His righteousness, I will indeed make music to the name, the Most High Yahweh. Verse 1 began with a plea. Verse 17 concludes with a praise. This world's not fixed yet, is it? It's a mess of problems. But David's going to praise anyway. He'll pray and ask God to intervene, and eventually the malfeasant, the slanderer will fade away. Will not exist in a problematic way anymore. And it teaches us to pray And it teaches us to praise. Robert Davidson in his book, Courage to Doubt, commenting on this sort of scene in Psalm 7, says this, it was precisely because the psalmists had to take evil seriously in their personal experience and in the world at large that they had to take God seriously. That's why they were forced to ask so many questions. There were no easy answers, but there was a faith to be lived, often painfully, even in the midst of their questions. And so we, like David, live by faith, confessing and trusting in God's perfect righteousness, being sure to keep a clean conscience before God, and awaiting God's final vindication and justice. Because it'll come, dear friend, when Jesus comes. And so we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, thank You for Your Word. Such a comfort to beleaguered sinners. It helps us to see ourselves like in a mirror. and helps us to see our Creator, our God, and all His wisdom. Father, thank You for the hope we have as we rest in the refuge of Your righteousness. Amongst malicious smear campaigns, your people have always been slandered. We can have a clean conscience and live a life of faith and gratefulness and worship. Thank you for our church. Thank you for these blessed people. God, I pray that you would strengthen their faith as they look to you for final vindication and trust you as they live by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.